Okay, so we're going to uh, pick up here um, at the second half. Remember, we stopped right in the middle of chapter 11, right at the, uh, right, at the uh, uh, right at the break with the woman who's, uh, who was lamenting, you know, she wanted to see her son, she wanted her child, wanted her child. And uh, she would do anything, you know, just tell me what I got to do and I'll do it just so I can see my child. And, you know, the spirit who came to her said, well, that's not how it works. You're using God as a means to an end, not as an end to itself. You know, and she said she, she would basically rather take her son back into hell with her so long as she could, she could have her son with her rather than, you know, be with God in paradise, Right and with her son in paradise. So um, her, her possessive love of, of herself and her son was, was obviously greater than the love that she had, had for God. And so um, this being a very difficult sort of thing, you know, the, the, the mother's love for her son and how could, how could such a thing, how could we conceive of, of such a woman being damned for not letting go of, you know, of, of this sort of real, really selfish love because it, it um, she really, she had made her son an object of her love. So she was, she was more willing to be possessive of her son than even will her son's own good, right? So she would rather possess her son in hell than have her son's own blessedness in heaven. Um, so then we kind of pick that up, and there's a little bit of, of um, I probably should have, should have ended a little bit after this, because there's a little bit of explanation about that. Um, so we'll, we'll finish that up, and then there's another scene here that finishes up chapter 11, um, finally a positive one, um, and then we'll, we'll move on. So, um, why did you bring me away, sir, said I, when we had passed out of earshot earshot of this unhappy ghost. It might take a long while, that conversation, said my teacher, and ye have heard enough to see what the choice is. Is there any hope for her, sir? Ay, there's some. What she calls her love for her son has turned into a poor, prickly, astringement sort of thing. But there's still a wee spark of something that's not just herself in it. That might be blown into a flame." then some natural feelings are really better than, than others. I mean, are a better starting point for the real thing. Better and worse. There's something in natural affection which will lead it on to eternal love more easily than natural appetite could be led on. But there's also something in it which makes it easier to stop at the natural level and mistake it for the heavenly. Brass is mistaken for gold more easily than clay is. And if it finally refuses conversion, its corruption will be worse than the corruption of what you call the lower passions. It is a stronger angel, and therefore, when it falls, a fiercer devil. I don't know that I dare repeat this on earth, sir, said I. They'd say I was inhuman. They'd say that I believed in total depravity. They'd say I was attacking the best and the holiest things. They'd call me, it might do you no harm if they did, said he. I really thought, uh, with a twinkle in his eye. But, I could, but could one dare, could one have the face to go to a bereaved mother in her misery when one's not bereaved oneself? No, no, son, that's no office of yours. You're not a good enough man for that. When your own heart's been broken... It will be time for you to think of talking. But someone must say in general what's been unsaid among you this many a year. That love, that love, as mortals understand the word, isn't enough. Every natural love will rise again and live forever in this country. But none will rise again until it has been buried. The saying is almost too hard for us. Ah, but it's cruel not to say it. They that know have grown afraid to speak. That is why sorrows that used to purify now only fester. Keats was wrong then when he said 
he was certain of the holiest of the heart's affections. I doubt if he clearly knew what he meant, but you and I must be clear. There is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. And the higher and mightier it is in the natural order, the, the more demoniac it will be of it if it rebels. It's not, all, it's not out of bad mice or bad fleas you make demons, but out of bad archangels. The false religion of lust is baser than the false religion of mother love or of patriotism or art. But lust is less likely to be made into a religion. Okay, so do you understand what he's saying here? So the greater the, greater the presumably good thing that gets perverted, the greater evil that it becomes. So the love that the true love that a mother ought to have for a child the self the selfless self-giving love that a mother ought to have for for a child ought to be you know a in many ways a a true reflection of the self the selfless love that that God has for his own son although of course imperfect and 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 a you know, a shadow of, of God's because it's, it's perfect, because God's love is perfect. But it's, it's of a higher order than something like, you know, love for nature or, or that sort of thing. Um, but to make one's love for a child into a sort of, you know, religion, the perversion of something that ought to be higher than making love for nature into a religion, the perversion of the love for the child, because it's of a higher level, right, perverting that makes it on the evil side of a higher level of evil relative to perverting the love of, you know, nature or cats, which is pretty low in the natural order. I'm just joking if you're a cat lover. I'm a dog person. Everybody out there who are cat people, don't take offense. Um, <clears throat> but that's the point he's, he's trying to make here, is that the perversion of something higher into something evil becomes you know, a, greater, a greater evil than the perversion of something lower in, in you know, that ought to be good. Okay? All right, so then he moves on to a new scene. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all ghosts, he was unsubstantial. But they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the, away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body, too, for there was a heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this little chap, here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit. An angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, look out, you're burning me, keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? 
Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think it over when you've said very what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward, but it isn't that. Really, it isn't, I say. Let me run back to by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You are jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the damned thing without asking me before I knew? It would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. It is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear, it, hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't. But supposing it did? You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may? Damn and blast you. Go on, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering, God help me. God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed, closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then flung it broken-backed on the turf. Ow! That's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then, brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands. The neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly, I stared back. Suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I had ever seen, silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shiny and rippled with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hoofs. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees dindled. 
The new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed its, his bright body. Horse and master breathed each into its other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have been only the liquid love and brightness, one cannot distinguish them in that country, which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it. In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I knew well what was happening. There was riding, if you liked. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were only like a shooting star far off on the green plain and soon among the foothills of the mountains. Then, still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps, and quicker every moment, till near the dim brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. While I still watched, I noticed the whole plain and forest were shaking, which is with a sound which in our world would be too large to hear, but there I could take it with joy. I knew it was not the solid people who were singing. It was the voice of that earth, those woods and those waters, a strange, archaic, inorganic noise that came from all directions at once. The nature or arch nature of that land rejoiced to have been once more ridden and therefore consummated in the person of the horse. It sang, the master says to our master, come up, share my rest and splendor till all natures that were your enemies become slaves to dance before you and backs for you to ride and firmness for your feet to rest on. From beyond all place and time out of the very place, authority will be given you. The strengths that once opposed your will shall be obedient fire in your blood and heavenly thunder in your voice. Overcome us that, so overcome, we may be ourselves. We, may, we desire the beginning of your reign as we desire dawn and dew, wetness at the birth of light. Master, your master has appointed you forever to be our king of justice and our high priest. Do you understand this at all, my son? said the teacher. I don't know about all, sir, said I. Am I right in thinking the lizard really turned into the horse? Yes, but it was killed first. You'll not forget that part of the story. I'll try not to, sir, but it doesn't mean that everything, everything that is in us can go on to the mountains. Nothing, not even the best and noblest, can go on as it now is. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains, not because they are too rank, but because they are too weak. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. But I am to tell them at home that this man's sensuality proved less of an obstacle than that poor woman's love for her son? For that was, at any rate, an excess of love. You'll tell them no such thing, he replied sternly. Excess of love, did you say? There was no excess. There was defect. She loved her son too little, not too much. If she had loved him more, there'd be no difficulty. I do not know how her affair will end, but... It may well be at this moment she's demanding to have him down with her in hell. That kind is sometimes perfectly ready to plunge the soul they say they love in endless misery if only they can still in some fashion possess it. No, no, you must draw another lesson. You must ask if the risen body even of appetite is as grand a horse as you saw. What would the risen body of maternal love or friendship be? But once more, my attention, it was diverted. So 
I thought that was, uh, for me, that last line was actually kind of the, the most, uh, I mean, I, that, that whole passage for me is, is rather profound because all we've had is miserable stories. <laughs> defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat. And then finally, you know, we have, you know, this poor, you know, poor guy who's been weighed down by presumably lust, you know, his entire life. And uh, it's embodied by this little lizard on his shoulder who just, you know, is Adam and Adam, um, even into the afterlife. And, uh, you know, what, what we've been, with each story of each spirit, you know, each spirit has been given this opportunity to, to, to essentially allow something that is keeping them from salvation die. Something had to die, you know, in their life. Some defect had to die for them. You know, they had to give it up. They had to let it die, and they couldn't do it. For the, you know, the, the one we just previously, the, the possessive love this woman had for her son had to die so she could embrace God's love first. Because you can't love your son properly until you first love God properly. You know, you, you, you can't just love your son without loving God. It's a disordered love. So there is no love in heaven without loving God first, in other words. Um, so here you have this, this, this poor guy who's been, um, you know, and it also really gives a, a, just a, a totally different view of uh, sin, because, and, and I think it, it really uh, expounds on God's mercy as well. You know, as opposed to looking at um, all of the bad things we've done, it really shows how the human condition is an affliction in, the, in this man's story, right? That this lizard, which represents lust, is an affliction, which is really, I mean, if you look at, I mean, just from my perspective as a priest, it's really how I see all of our lives, that we're just all afflicted by so many different things, and we just all have these afflictions. So this poor guy's been afflicted, and um, because of just the, you know, the repetition of this and, and the closeness that, um, you know, because if, if you don't develop virtue, you develop vice in any number of areas, and the more that you practice something, the more that it clings to you. And so He's obviously developed this vice of lust, right, as opposed to the virtue of chastity, which is the, the contrary. And so, um, so this, for him to be able to enter into heaven, lust has to die. And so here's this angel just waiting. Can I kill it? Can I kill it? Can I, I mean, you can't get any closer, you know, and at one point he even says, well, if you would have just done it, it'd be over with, you know, and. The angel says, I can't do it against your will. You have to say yes. And it just, and even his yes is like the most, you know, meager of yeses, you know. It, it's not even like, do it. It's like, fine, fine, just, you know, do it. And so he kills it. And, um, you know, what's so amazing is the, um, and you see it, how, how the, the vice turns into the virtue which is what happens. You know, the greatest, um, when a person turns their life around in any number of, of ways, but also regarding um, one of their afflictions, when they're able to, to, to really gain some headway in one of their afflictions or one of their vices, um, one of, their, vi one of their, their, their largest vices often can turn around and become one of their greatest virtues. And so we see it in this man's uh, situation where he, he he's finally able to consent to to the death of of lust and then and then God resurrects that lizard in this great stallion of chastity presumably which he then rides he doesn't even have to walk to the mountains right and and you know could because once he consents to the death of this vice he is remade right there before their eyes he doesn't even have to put in the time to walk to the mountains, you know, that, that tribulation that would go, you know, the going through the process of being remade. He is right there remade 
and rides the, the horse. Remember how, how at one point, uh, uh, I think it was in the previous chapter, they were, they were talking about how, might have been that same chapter, how the, um, the spirits had taken a great deal of trouble because there, there's this progression through the, through the mountains, deeper and deeper, presumably like closer to God. And, you know, that this takes a great deal of time. And so by his consent to allow God to remake him, he's given this, this great stallion to, to ride deeper and deeper into the mountains. Um, and so it's, and then we get to this last line here before we go to the next chapter. Um, and, um, and he says, you must draw another lesson. You should ask if the risen body of an appetite is as grand a horse as you saw, namely lust, right? What would the risen body of maternal love or friendship be? So if that woman the previous situation, if that woman would have given her consent to be remade and, and, and given her love over to God and let go of her possessive love of her son, what would have that looked like, which was a much higher good, right, than, than just an appetite like lust, right? The, 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 higher, the higher love, the maternal love rightly ordered, what would have that looked like, right? I mean, he just saw one of the lowest, lust being one of the lowest sins. I mean, it's still a serious sin, but one of the lowest sins. All right, chapter 12. The reason why I asked if there was another river was this. All down one long aisle of the forest was the undersides of the leafy branches. The, leaf, the undersides of the leafy branches had begun to tremble with dancing light. And on earth I knew nothing so likely to produce this appearance as the reflected lights cast upward by moving water. A few moments later, I realized my mistake. Some kind of procession was approaching us, and the light came from the persons who composed it. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men, who danced and scattered flowers, soundlessly falling, lightly drifting flowers, Though by standards of the ghost world, each petal would have weighed a hundred weight, and their fall would have been like cra the crashing of boulders. Then on the left and right, each, at each side of the forest avenue came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. If I could remember their singing and write down the notes, no man who read that score would ever grow sick or old. Between them went musicians, and after these a lady in whose honor all this was being done. I cannot now remember whether she was naked or clothed. If she were naked, then it must have been the almost visible penumbra of her courtesy and joy, which produces in my memory the illusion of a great and shining train that followed her across the happy grass. If she were clothed, then the illusion of nakedness is doubtless due to the charity with which her inner, innermost spirit shone through the clothes. For clothes in that country are not a disguise. The spiritual body lives along each thread and turns them into living organs. A robe or a crown is there as much as one of the wearer's features as a lip or an eye. But I have forgotten, and only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is it, is it, I whispered to my guide, no, not at all, said he. It's someone you'll never have heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. She seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. Aye, she's one of the great ones. You've heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. And who are these gigantic people? Look, they're like emeralds who are dancing and throwing flowers before her. Haven't you read your Milton? A thousand liveried angels lackey her? And who are all these young men and women on each side? They are her sons and daughters. She must have had a very large family, sir. Every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Isn't that a bit hard on their own parents? No. There are those that steal other people's children, but her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. 
Few men looked on her without becoming, in a certain fashion, her lovers. But it was the kind of love that made them not less true, but truer to their own wives. And how but, hello, what are these, all these animals? A cat? Two, two cats? Dozens of cats? Obviously, we know that Lewis is clearly embellishing because cats could not be in heaven. This is Father John joking. And all these dogs? Why, I can't count them. And the birds and the horses? They are her beasts. Did she keep a sort of zoo? I mean, this is a bit too much. Every beast and bird that came near her had its place in her love. In her they became themselves. And now the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows over into them. I looked at my teacher in amazement. Yes, he said, it is like when you throw a stone into a pool and the concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it will end? Redeemed humanity is still young. It has hardly come to its full strength. But already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint such as yonder lady to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. While we spoke, the lady was steadily advancing towards us, but it was not at us she looked. Following the direction of her eyes, I turned and saw an oddly shaped phantom approaching, or rather two phantoms, a great tall ghost, horribly thin and shaky, who seemed to be leading on a chain another ghost, no bigger than an organ grinder's monkey. The taller ghost wore a soft black hat, and he reminded me of something that my memory could not quite recover. Then, when he had come within a few feet of the lady, he spread out his lean, shaky hand flat on his chest with the fingers wide apart and exclaimed in a hollow voice, At last! All at once I realized what it was that he had put me in mind of. He was like a seedy actor of the old school. Darling, at last, said the lady. Good heavens, thought I. Surely she can't. Then I noticed two things. In the first place, I noticed that the little ghost was not being led by the big one. It was the dwarfish figure that held the chain in its hand and the theatrical figure that wore the collar around its neck. In the second place, I noticed that the lady was looking solely at the dwarf ghost. She seemed to think it was the dwarf who had addressed her, or else she was deliberately ignoring the other. On the poor dwarf, she turned her eyes. Love shone not from her face only, but from all her limbs, as if it were some liquid in which she had just been bathing. Then, to my dismay, she came nearer. She stooped down and kissed the dwarf. It made one shudder to, th to see her in such close contact with that cold, damp, shrunken thing, but she did not shudder. Frank, she said, before anything else, forgive me. For all I ever did wrong and for all I did not do right since the first day we met, I ask your pardon. I looked properly at the dwarf for the first time now, or perhaps when he received her kiss, he became a little more visible. I could just make out the sort of face he must have had when he was a man, a little oval, freckled face with a weak chin and a tiny wisp of unsuccessful mustache. He gave her a glance, not a full w look. He was watching the tragedian out of the corner of his eyes. Then he gave a jerk to the chain, and it was the tragedian, not he, who answered the lady. There, there, said the tragedian. We'll say no more about it. We all make mistakes. With the words, there came over his features a ghastly contortion, which I think was meant for an indulgently playful smile. We'll say no more, he continued. It's not myself I'm thinking about, it's you. That is what has been continually on my mind all these years, the thought of you, you here alone, breaking your heart about me. But now, said the lady to the dwarf, you can set that all aside. Never think like that again. It's all over. Her beauty brightened so that I could hardly see anything else. And under that sweet compulsion, the dwarf really looked at her f for the first time. For a second, I thought he was growing more like a man. He opened his mouth. He himself was going to speak this time. But oh, the disappointment when the words came. You missed me? He croaked in a small, bleeding voice. Yet even then, she was not taken aback. Still the love and courtesy flowed from her. Dear, you will understand about that very soon, she said. But today... What happened next gave me a shock. The dwarf and tragedian spoke in unison, not to her, but to one another. 
You'll notice, they warned one another, she hasn't answered our question. I realized then that they were one person, or rather that both were the remains of what had been one, been a person. The dwarf again rattled the chain. You missed me, said the tragedian to the lady, throwing a dreadful theatrical tremor into his voice. Dear friend, said the lady, still attending exclusively to the dwarf, you may be happy about that and about everything else. Forget about it all forever. And really for a moment, I thought the dwarf was going to obey, partly because the outlines of his face became a little clearer and partly because the invitation to all joy, singing out of her whole being like a bird's song on an April evening, seemed to me such that no creature could resist it. Then he hesitated, and then once more he and his accomplice spoke in unison. Of course, it would be rather fine and magnanimous not to press the point, they said to one another, but can we be sure she'd notice? We've done these sort of things before. There was the time we let her have the last stamp in the house to write her mother and said nothing, although she had known we'd wanted to write a letter ourselves. We thought she'd remember and see how unselfish we'd been, but she never did. And there, there was the time, oh, lots and lots of times. So the dwarf gave a shake to the chain and, I can't forget it, cried the tragedian, and I won't forget it either. I could forgive them all they've done to me, but for your miseries. Oh, don't you understand, said the lady, there are no miseries here. Do you mean to say, answered the dwarf, as if this new idea had made him quite forget the tragedian for a moment, do you mean to say you've been happy? <laughs> Didn't you want me to be? But no matter. Want it now, or don't think about it at all. The dwarf blinked at her. One could see an unheard of idea trying to enter his little mind. One could see even that there was for him some sweetness in it. For a second, he had almost let the chain go. Then, as if it were his lifeline, he clutched it once more. Look here, said the tragedy, and we've got to face this. He was using his manly bullying tone this time, the one for bringing women to their senses. <laughs> Darling, said the lady to the dwarf, there's nothing to face. You don't want me to have, you don't want me to have been miserable for misery's sake. You only think I must have been if I loved you. But if you'll only wait, you'll see that it isn't so. Love, said the tragedian, striking his forehead with his hand, then a few notes deeper. Love, do you know the meaning of the word? How should I not, said the lady. I am in love, in love. Do you understand? Yes, now I love truly. You mean, said the tragedian, you mean you did not love me truly in the old days? Only in a poor sort of way, she answered. I have asked you to forgive me. There was a little real love in it. But what we called love down there was mostly the craving to be loved. In the main, I loved you for my own sake, because I needed you. And now, said the tragedian with hackneyed gesture of despair, now you need me no more? But of course not, said the lady, and her smile made me wonder how both the phantoms could refrain from crying out with joy. What needs could I have now that I have all? I am full now, not empty. I am in love himself, not lonely. Strong, not weak. You shall be the same. Come and see. We shall have no need for one another now. We can begin to love truly. But the tragedian was still striking attitudes. She needs me no more, no more, no more, he said in a choking voice to no one in particular. Would to God, he continued, but he was now pronounce, pronouncing it God. Would to God, I had seen her lying dead at my feet before I heard these words. Lying dead at my feet, lying dead at my feet. I do not know how long the creature intended to go on repeating the phrase, for the lady put an end to that. Frank, Frank, she cried in a loud voice that made the whole wood ring. Look at me, look at me. What are you doing with that great ugly doll? Let go of the chain. Send it away. It is you I want. Don't you see what nonsense it's talking? Merriment danced in her eyes. She was sharing a joke with the dwarf right over the head of the tragedian. Something not at all unlike a smile struggled to appear on the dwarf's face, for he was looking at her now. Her laughter was past his first defenses. He was struggling hard to keep it out, but already with imperfect success. Against his will, he was even growing a little bigger. Oh, you great goose, she said. What is the good of talking like that here? You know as well as I do that 
You did see me lying dead years and years ago, not at your feet, of course, but on a bed in a nursing home, a very good nursing home it was too. Matron would never have dreamed of leaving dead bodies lying about on the floor. It's ridiculous for that doll to try to be impressive about death here. It just won't work. I do not know that I ever saw anything more terrible than the struggle of that dwarf ghost against joy. For he had almost been overcome. Somewhere incalculable ages ago, there must have been gleams of humor and reason in him. For one moment, while she looked at him in her love and mirth, she saw the absurdity of the tragedian. For one moment, he did not at all misunderstand her laughter. He too must once have known that no people find each other more absurd than lovers. But the light that reached him reached him against his will. This was not the meeting he had pictured. He would not accept it. Once more he clutched at his death line, and at once the tragedian spoke. You dare to laugh at it, it stormed. To my face, and this is my reward very well, it is, a, it is fortunate that you give yourself no concern about my fate. Otherwise, you might be sorry afterwards to think that you had driven me back to hell. What, do you think I'd stay now? Thank you, I believe I'm fairly quick at recognizing where I'm not wanted. Not needed was the exact expression, if I remember rightly. From this time on, the dwarf never spoke again, but still the lady addressed it. Dear, no one sends you back. Here is all joy. Everything bids you stay. But the dwarf was growing smaller even while she spoke. Yes, said the tragedian, on terms you might offer to a dog. I happen to have some self-respect left, and I see that my going will make no difference to you. It is nothing to, go to you that I go back to the cold and the gloom, the lonely, lonely streets. Don't, don't, Frank. Don't let it talk like that. But the dwarf was now so small that she had dropped to her knees to speak to it. The tragedian caught her words greedily as a dog catches a bone. Ah, you can't bear to hear it, he shouted with miserable triumph. There w that was always the way. You must be sheltered. Grim realities must be kept out of your sight. You who can be happy without me, forgetting me. You don't want even to hear of my sufferings. You say don't. Don't tell you, don't make you unhappy, don't break in on your sheltered, self-centered little heaven, and this is the reward. She stooped still lower to speak to the dwarf, who is, now no, who is now a figure no bigger than a kitten, hanging on the end of the chain with his feet off the ground. That wasn't why I said don't, she answered. I meant stop acting, it's no good, he's killing you. Let go of that chain, even now. Acting, screamed the tragedian. What do you mean? The dwarf was now so small that I could not distinguish him from the chain to which he was clinging, and now for the first time I could not be certain whether the lady was addressing him or the tragedian. Quick, she said, there's still time. Stop it. Stop it at once. Stop what? Using pity, other people's pity in the wrong way. We have all done it a bit on earth, you know. Pity was meant to be a spur that drives joy to help misery, but it can be used in the wrong way around. It can be used for a kind of blackmailing. Those who choose misery can hold joy up to ransom by pity. You see, I know now, even as a child you did it. Instead of saying you were sorry, you went and sulked in the attic because you knew that sooner or later one of your sisters would say, I can't bear to think of him sitting up there alone crying. You used their pity to blackmail them, and they gave in in the end. And afterwards, when we were married, oh, it doesn't matter if only you would stop it. And that, said the tragedy, and that is all you have understood of me after all these years? <laughs> I don't know what had become of the dwarf ghost by now. Perhaps it was climbing up the chain like an insect. Perhaps it was somehow absorbed into the chain. No, Frank, not here, said the lady. Listen to reason. Did you think joy was created to live always under that threat? Always defenseless against those who would rather be miserable than to have their self-will crossed? For it was real misery. I know that now. You made yourself really wretched. That you can still do, but you can no longer communicate your wretchedness. Everything becomes more and more itself. Here is joy that cannot be shaken. Our light can swallow up your darkness, but your darkness can, cannot now infect our light. No, come to us. We will not go to you. Can you really have thought that love and joy would always be at the mercy of frowns and sighs? Do you not know that they were stronger than their opposites? Love, how dare you use that sacred word, said the tragedian, 
At the same moment, he gathered up the chain, which had now for some time been swinging uselessly at his side, and somehow disposed of it. I'm not quite sure, but I think he swallowed it. Then, for the first time, it became clear that the lady saw and addressed him only. Where is Frank, she said, and who are you, sir? I never knew you. Perhaps you had better leave me or stay if you prefer. If it would help you and if it were possible, I would go down with you into hell, but you cannot bring Helen to me. You do not love me, said the tragedian in a thin bat-like voice, and he was now very difficult to see. I cannot love a lie, said the lady. I cannot love the thing which is not. I am in love, and out of it I will not go. There was no answer. The tragedian had vanished. The lady was alone in that woodland place, and a brown bird went hopping past her, bending with its light feet the grasses I could not bend. Presently, the lady got up and began to walk away. The other bright spirits came forward to receive her singing as they came. So the uh, um, couple interesting things there. Num- you know, the first, uh, um, you know, obviously a married couple. Um, and his major defect there is, you know, you can imagine what their marriage was like. Um, but, but I... You know, I certainly, um, certainly have seen this in, in a lot of married couples and in a lot of different ways um, where people hold each other hostage, you know, emotional blackmail, um, you know, emotional manipulation. It, it's, it's really pretty abusive, actually. Um, and, you know, she described it rather well, using pity to, to manipulate other people to get what they want, you know, and even in, even in heaven, he was, he was trying to, or, you know, at the, at the antechamber of heaven, you know, he was trying to coerce her into what, you know, and he, <laughs> you can just imagine the, the scene of her coming in, in her clear, clearly she is happy and blessed and, and she's coming in with this huge entourage and, and he is this miserable creature and he still is looking to gain the upper hand in some sort of, you know, emotional manipulation. And you would think, you know, it's one thing to have two people, you know, um, sort of embodied in a relationship here on earth, but given sort of the existential reality that that would have looked like, you'd <laughs> think the itty bitty guy would have would have been able to recognize the you know, the, the clear difference, right, uh, that existed between them. But even in that, he thought he had, he had some leverage over her that he could, he could continue to, to batter her with, you know, this, this manipulation. And, um, um, and then couldn't stand to hear that, that he wasn't needed, right? Because obviously for the entirety of the relationship, he, he, uh, he was able to manipulate and, and feel needed because of, because of that manipulation, which, you know, which ran out. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting is that, uh, because, you know, one of the questions, what would it mean to be in heaven and to know that, I mean, obviously she loved him. And so what would it mean to be in heaven and to know that friends or family members are not there? And could we be happy in heaven knowing that? Um, and so that's a, that's a really important thing to consider um, because, you know, obviously I would say yes. You, just logically, we would, we would have to be um, because I, I, think, I think we would, and, and I think the reason for that would be I mean, here it's sort of explicated in so many different, in these different scenes that I I think we would understand on one hand that God would have done everything he could except force somebody into heaven. You know, like that, that God would have given every chance he possibly could except throw them into heaven. You know, in other words, coerce them against their will, which he can't do. Because that wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't make any sense to make somebody love him who doesn't love him. Because why would, why would you do that? That, you know, that, 
it's like forcing somebody to, I'm going to force you, I should point to a woman, I should, I'm going to force you to marry me, you know, I don't love you, doesn't matter, they're going to force you to marry me, well, you know, why would you do that, you know, because I want to be miserable the rest of my life, I mean, that doesn't make a relationship, so God isn't going to do that, um, and so, you know, at the same time, you know, how can there be sadness? Well, I think because, um, you know, I, I, I think at the, at the end of the day, I think there's, at the end of the day, there wouldn't be an end of the day in heaven, but that's beside the point. Um, I, I suppose, uh, not that we would necessarily have to understand all of it, but given that in heaven we are going to be united with God's infinite love, I just, I guess it, I'm going to say that I'm just going to trust God to figure all that stuff out for me. And I, I don't really have to understand it all completely. But I do trust for me. I mean, this is how I answered. Answered ultimately is that, um, I mean, I personally, my personal belief is that most people are in heaven. That's not Catholic doctrine, but the church doesn't teach anything about that. It's kind of an open-ended thing. Um, the church doesn't say anyone's in hell, you know. So we're kind of free to to have our position on that, you know. Um, so you know, but I, but ultimately, I would I would you know my my feel my personal position is that I, I I certainly think that God will do everything He can to to help people into heaven, and only those who really just don't want to be there are the ones that he just can't force them into something which is a, a matter of free will. Okay, let me finish up. Um, let me finish up this chapter. Oh, yeah, we're almost done. All right, I'm skipping the song here. Um, so she moves off. And yet, yet, I said to my teacher, when all the shapes and the singing had passed some distance away into the forest, even now I am not quite sure. Is it really tolerable that she should be untouched by his misery, even his self-made misery? Would ye rather he still had the power of tormenting her? He did it many a day and many a year in their earthly life. Well, no, I suppose I don't want that. What then? I hardly know, sir. What some people say on earth is that the final loss of one's soul gives the lie to all the joy of those who are saved. You see, it does not. I feel in a way that it ought to. That sounds very merciful, but see what lurks behind it. What? The demand of the loveless and the self-imprisoned, that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe, that till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one else shall taste joy, that there should be the final power, that hell should be able to veto heaven. Does that make sense? Do you follow that? So what he's saying is that if, um, if, if the argument goes that nobody can be happy in heaven if some people are damned in hell, and we've got to wait until everybody in hell is happy, well, then that means that the people in hell are essentially vetoing everybody in heaven, and we've got to wait until they're all happy. Well, how long is that going to take until they're all happy? Well, they're the miserable, bas miserable bastards who can't accept God's love. <laughs> So how long is that going to take? You know, so they hold the entire universe hostage waiting for their happiness. That's kind of the line of argument. All right. I don't know what I want, sir. Son, it must be one way or the other. Either the day must come when joy prevails and all the makers of misery are no longer able to infect it, or else forever and ever the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness they reject for themselves. I know it is a grand sound to say that you'll accept no salvation which leaves even one creature in the dark outside, but watch that sophistry or you'll make a dog in the manger the tyrant of the universe. But dare one say it's horrible to say that pity must ever die. You must distinguish. The action of pity will live forever, but the passion of pity will not. The passion of pity, the pity we merely suffer, the ache that draws men to concede what should not be conceded and to flatter when they should speak the truth, the pity that has cheated many a woman out of her virginity 
and many a statesman out of his honesty, that will die. It was used as a weapon by bad men against good ones. Their weapon will be broken. And what is the other kind, the action? It's a weapon on the other side. It leaps quicker than light from the highest place to the lowest to bring healing and joy, whatever the cost to itself. It changes darkness into light and evil into good. But it will not, at the cunning tears of hell, impose on the good the tyranny of evil. Every disease that submits to a cure shall be cured. But we will not call blue yellow to please those who insist on still having jaundice, nor make a midden of the world's garden for the sake of some who cannot abide by the smell of roses. You say it will go down to the lowest, sir, but... She didn't go down with him to hell. She didn't even see him off by the bus. Where would you have had her go? Why, where we all came from by the bus, the big gulf beyond the edge of the cliff over there. You can't see it from here, but you must know the place I mean. My teacher gave a curious smile. Look, he said, and with the word he went down on his knees, hands and knees. I did the same, how it hurt my knees, and presently saw that he had plucked a blade of grass Using its thin end as a pointer, he made me see, after I looked very closely, a crack in the soil so small I could not have identified it without this aid. I cannot be certain, he said, that this is the crack you came up through, but a crack, but through a crack no bigger than that, you certainly came. But, but I grasped with a feeling of bewilderment, not unlike terror, I saw an infinite abyss and cliffs towering up and up and then this country on top of the cliffs. Aye, but the voyage was not mere locomotion. That bus and all you inside it were increasing in size. Do you mean then that hell, all that infinite empty town, is down in some small little crack like this? Yes, all hell is smaller than one pebble of your earthly world, but it is smaller than one atom of this world the real world. Look at yon butterfly. If it swallowed all hell, hell would not be big enough to do it any harm or to even have any taste. It seems big enough when you're in it, sir. And yet all loneliness, angers, hatreds, envies, and itchings that it contains, if rolled into one single experience and put into the scale against the least moment of the joy that is felt by the least in heaven, would have no weight that it could be registered at all. Bad cannot succeed even in being bad, as truly as good as good. If all hell's miseries together enter the consciousness of yon wee yellow bird on the, on the bough there, they would be swallowed up without a trace. If one drop of ink had been dropped into the great ocean to which your terrestrial Pacific itself, only a molecule. I see, I said at last. She couldn't fit into hell. He nodded. There's not room for her he said. Hell could not open its mouth wide enough, and she couldn't make herself smaller like Alice, you know. Nothing like small enough, for a damned soul is nearly nothing. It is shrunk, shut up in itself. Good beats upon the damned incessantly as sound waves beat on the ears of the deafs, deaf, but they cannot receive it. Their fists are clenched, their teeth are clenched, their eyes fast shut. First they will not, in the end they cannot open their hands for gifts, or their mouth for food, or their eyes to see. Then no one can ever reach them. Only the greatest of all can make himself small enough to enter hell. For the higher a thing is, the lower it can descend. A man can sympathize with a horse, but a horse cannot sympathize with a rat. Only one has descended into hell. And will he ever do it again? It was not once long ago that he did it. Time does not work that way when once ye had left the earth. All moments that have been or shall be were or are present in the moment of his descending. There is no spirit in prison to whom he did not preach. And some hear him? I. In your own book, sir, said I, you were a universalist. You talked as if all men would be saved in St. Paul too. You can know nothing of the end of all things or nothing expressible in those terms. It may be, as the Lord said to the Lady Julian, that all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well, but it's ill talking of such questions. Because they are too terrible, sir. No, because all answers deceive. 
If you put the question from within time and are asking about possibilities, the answer is certain. The choice of ways is before you, neither is closed. Any man may choose eternal death. Those who choose it will have it. But if you are trying to leap on into eternity, if you are trying to see the final state of all things as it will be, for so you must speak, then there are no more possibilities left, but only the real. Then you ask what cannot be answered to mortal ears. Time is the very lens through which you see, small and clear, as men see through the wrong end of a telescope, something that would otherwise be too big for you to see at all. That thing is freedom, the gift whereby you most resemble your maker and are yourselves parts of eternal reality. But you can see it only through the lens of time in a little clear picture through the inverted telescope. It is a picture of moments following one another and yourself in each moment making some choice that might have been otherwise. Neither the temporal succession nor the phantom of which you might have chosen and didn't is itself freedom, they are a lens. The picture is a symbol, but it's truer than a philosophical theorem that claims to go beyond it. For every attempt to see the shape of eternity except through the lens of time destroys your knowledge of freedom. Witness the doctrine of predestination which shows truly enough that eternal reality is not waiting for a future in which to be real, but at the price of removing freedom, which is the deeper truth of the two. And wouldn't universalism do the same? You cannot know eternal reality by a definition. Time itself and all acts and events that fill time are the definition, and it must be lived. The Lord said, we are gods. How long could you bear to look without time's time's lens on the greatness of your own soul and the eternal reality of her choice. And suddenly all was changed. I saw a great assembly of gigantic forms all motionless, all in deepest silence, standing forever about a little silver table and looking upon it. And on the table there were little figures like chessmen who went to and fro doing this and that. And I knew that each chessman was the idiolum or puppet representative of some of the great presences that stood by. And the acts and motions of each chessman were moving a moving portrait, a mimicry or pantomime, which delineated the inmost nature of his giant master. And these chessmen are men and women as they appear to themselves and to one another in this world. And the silver table is time. And those that stand and watch are the immortal souls of those same men and women. Then vertigo and terror seized me, and clutching at my teacher, I said, Is that the truth? Then is all that I have been seeing in this country false? These conversations between the spirits and the ghosts were only the mimicry of choices that had really been made long ago. Or might ye not as well say anticipations of a choice to be made at the end of all things? But ye do better to say neither. Ye saw the choices a bit more clearly than you could see them on earth. The lens was clearer, but it was still seen through the lens. Do not ask of a vision in a dream more than a vision in a dream can give. A dream? Then then am I not really here, sir? No, son, he said kindly, taking my hand in his. It is not so good as that. The bitter drink of death is still before you. You are only dreaming. And if you come to tell of what you have seen, make it plain that it was only a dream. See, you make it very plain. Give no poor fool the pretext to think you are claiming knowledge of what no mortal knows. I'll have no Swedenborgs, no Vale Owens among my children. God forbid, sir, said I, trying to look very wise. He has forbidden it. That's what I'm telling you. As he said this, he looked more scotch than ever. I was gazing steadfastly on his face. The vision of the chessmen had faded, and once more the quiet woods and the cool light before the sunrise were about us. Then, still looking at his face, I saw there something that sent a quiver through my whole body. I stood at that moment with my back to the east and the mountains, and he, he facing me, looked towards them. His face flushed with a new light. A fern 30 30 yards behind him turned golden. The eastern side of every tree trunk grew bright, shadows deepened. All the time there had been bird noises, trillings, chatterings, and the like. But now suddenly the full chorus was poured from every branch. Cocks were crowing. There was music of hounds and horns. Above all this, 10,000 tongues of men and woodlands angels. And the wood itself sang, it comes, it comes, they sang. 
Sleepers awake, it comes, it comes, it comes. One dreadful glance over my shoulder I essayed, not long enough to see, or did I see, the rim of the sunrise that shoots time dead with golden arrows and puts to flight all phantasmal shapes. Screaming, I buried my face in the fold of my teacher's robe. The morning, the morning, I cried. I am caught by the morning, and I am a ghost. But it was too late. The light, like solid blocks, intolerable of edge and weight, came thundering upon my head. Next moment, the folds of my teacher's garment were only the folds of the old ink-stained cloth on my study table, which I had pulled down with me as I fell from my chair. The blocks of light were only the books which I had pulled off with it falling about my head. I awoke in a cold room, hunched on the floor beside my black and empty grate, the clock striking three and the siren howling overhead. The end. All right. Thank you. <laughs>